So um, today's parable is a, is a continuation about the kingdom of heaven, okay? And it's a celebration describing the kingdom. It's about a wedding banquet that a king uh, has for his son, remember? And um, so the idea is the king is basically saying, let the party begin. Let's let the party begin. It's time to celebrate. My son is getting married. He's got this great banquet planned. And um, the parable, as we go through it, takes some crooked and wild turns, which is why it's taking a little bit longer, because we want to explore those curves and those turns a little bit. So I want to read Matthew uh, 22. Uh, We're going to just read that parable again and then kind of get a good start into it. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. It'll be up there on the screen for you, but it's it's always good to have your word open and uh, highlight and underline, write notes, stuff like that. You know, when Jesus comes, we won't be taking these with us. Did you know that? They won't come with us. Sorry. It's going to stay here, so it's okay. Totally okay. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying... The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent more servants, and he said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention And they went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and they gathered all the people they could find both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited but few, he said, are chosen. Wow, that's a, that's a story. That's a parable. That's, a, that's a, an, an amazing story about the kingdom of God. Remember, that's what Jesus is getting at, the kingdom of God. And so we began to dig into this thing in uh, verses 1 through 3, and, uh, and, and we kind of moving through this thing. We saw as we were moving through those first few verses, we talked about sad statements. Remember, sad statements like, like Jesus wept and things in the Bible that we come across that are like, they're sad, they're, they're disappointing, right? To God, to us, to, to just for our behavior and the way we act, like, oh, you know, we all like sheep have gone astray. And, and then we, so we came to these words in this parable where it says, but they refuse to come. You know, this king has thrown this great wedding banquet and he invites all his guests and they refuse to come. And not only that, but they begin to make up excuses why they can. And all the excuses are not bad. You know, they're not bad excuses, if you think about them. And our excuses aren't horrible. They're just excuses, though. And the king has prepared this great banquet, and he wants the place to be full, 
but they begin, they, they refuse to come, and they make up these, these sad excuses. Verse 4, he sent, remember he sends some servants out to, um, to tell them to come on in, and, 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 that, and here's the menu, like, you know, here's what we're going to be eating. Like, like, okay, maybe that's what they need to know, that they're going to eat better than they have ever eaten before. You know, because they're coming to the royal palace, and uh, this is the king of the kingdom, and he's going to prepare the best food that they will ever eat this year, and maybe that will entice them to come, but it doesn't. And everything's ready, and the, the second plea is made to come to the wedding, and in verse 5 it says they paid no attention, and they went off, and they one to his field, and another to his business, they made excuses. They made light of the invitation. Uh, they were... If you dig into this idea, they were careless with the information is what, what he's getting at. Like, 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 kind of like today, like, we know Jesus is going to come. We know he's coming back. The word of God tells us that. Jesus has told us that. We know it's going to happen. And yet, thousands, millions pay no attention. They pay no attention to that information. It's like... It's like they don't care. They refuse to come, is what these guys did in the story. And so we looked at Luke 14. Remember, there's a parallel passage in Luke 14, and the story kind of unfolds, and we dug into that a little bit. And um, at the end of that, what seemed to be the case that the king wants, when you look at Luke 14 and then Matthew 22, is the king wants, he just wants his... his uh, palace he wants his house to be full with guests it's what he really wants and and this is a wedding uh, a wedding banquet dinner celebration party for his son who's getting married and where we ended up was with this statement is that what the king is longing for is that the bride would show up right that the people would come and fill the wedding hall that's what the king wants more than anything and that's what the king wants more than anything, by the way, is that his, his kingdom would be full with people who respect the king, who honor the king and love the king. So that's where we left off, and we're going to move forward right now. So the, the, there's a couple things that I appreciate. You know, I'm sure we all appreciate certain things about Jesus. You know, we think about Jesus and what he did and how he taught and, and how he treated people and how he worked with his disciples and all those things. And I'm sure there's some things that you appreciate about Jesus. But I want to share with you what I appreciate about Jesus real quick. Number one is this. He's all about lost sinners coming in. Like you and me, lost sinners coming in, right? He's all about you coming in. And he went to whatever lengths he had to to get you in, to, to bring the word of God to you through your family, through your friends, through people, whatever it took, Jesus did to get you in. He's all about people coming in. The lame, the sick, the poor, the crippled, it doesn't matter. He wants everyone and anyone to come in. I appreciate that so much about him, don't you? I mean, he wants, he wants us to come back to him. We have lost our way. We have wandered away from the king of the kingdom, and he wants all of us back. That's good news for us today. Second thing I appreciate about Jesus is this. He's all about stirring up 
the church folk, or the, back in that day it was the religious folk. He was all about stirring them up. If you think about it, every time he encountered them, he was doing something to stir them up, just like in our parable, like in the Luke portion of it, when we dug into that and what he did. He's about stirring things up. He's about keeping people on their toes and on the edge of their seat, pushing them off of their places of complacency, challenging uh, the religious leaders' self-made ideas about the way it should be. Right? That's what Jesus, I appreciate so much about Jesus. He's stirring things up, making sure that their church doctrine didn't blind them from his mission. And I said their church doctrine. Not biblical doctrine, but their church doctrine. The things that they held that were so important that they wouldn't let others in. Jesus is like in our face. Like a, like a good friend, he's like in our face, you know, trying to wake us up, snap us out of it, tell us what the truth is, trying to get us to, to rethink what it is we're doing. So much, so much to the point that they wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. In our passage, if you're there still in Matthew 22, if you just skip down to the end of that story where it says, many are invited, but few are chosen, look at the next verse, verse 15, into the next section. Then the Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. See, they didn't like what Jesus was doing or what he was saying because he was pushing them off of their, their, their thrones of complacency and religious experiences. And I, and I appreciate that so much about Jesus, uh, making sure that we don't fall into the same kind of traps, that we don't get so complacent at what we think we've got going, that we forget what Jesus has going. You know, so the excuses are made about why they can't come, right? That's what's happening in the text. And how relevant is that today in our church, right? Reasons why we can't show up, right? We're too busy. We got work, sports, sleep, the beach, fishing, golfing, hunting, shopping. You know, we got all the reasons in the world why we can't show up for God. Why we can't go on a mission trip for the Lord. Why we can't show up and worship for God. Why we can't be a part of teaching a ministry. We got all the reasons in the world. Verse 6, here's what happens. Uh, so we've got those making excuses. And then we got the rest of the people and the servants. Where we are in the story is the servants are there trying to invite them to come. And the rest of the people, the others, they seize his servants. They mistreat them and they kill them. Wow. That's, that's, that took a, a really wild turn. I mean, these servants are just there like inviting them to this banquet feast. And, and, you know, a simple, no, I can't come, will do, but they kill the servants. I mean, that's pretty drastic, isn't it? I mean, that's really drastic. Like, how much do they hate the king? Or how much do they not like the family of the king or his son? I don't know what it is, but for some reason, they don't just say, no, we can't come or make up another excuse. They kill the servants. And the king sends his servants to invite these people, right, to this incredible wedding feast, right? This is good food and good times for all of the kingdom. And the scripture says they treat them violently. Like violent, they don't just like kill them. They, they mistreat them. They insult them. They're outraged against them. And they kill the servants. The King James says they slew them. That's a word you never, you don't hear much, right? 
means they were very hostile toward them. They killed the servants for, for sharing with them that the, the banquet was ready. Come to the feast, kill you. Just drastic, right? Real drastic. So what's going on here, if you think about the ministry of Jesus here, just for a second, is this, it's the third year of Jesus' ministry. Right? It's at the end of his third year. He's coming to the close of it. The, the end is very near. Soon, this suffering servant will be handed over. He will be mistreated, and he will be abused. He will be arrested, he will be sentenced, and he will be hung on a cross to die. That's what's going to happen soon in the ministry of Jesus when he tells this story. And they don't realize it at this moment, but I believe that the disciples are going to recall this wedding parable as they look at Jesus hanging on a cross. They're going to make some connections at that point about what Jesus was trying to say to them, what Jesus was trying to warn them about. What he was trying to let them know was soon to come. And that's how they treated the servants. They killed the servants. And so now in this parable where we're at, is it's about to get real. It's about to get really real. Up till now, it's just been a nice story about a king and its kingdom and inviting guests and all that happened there. But it's about to get real. Verse 7 says, the king was enraged. See, up to now, he was a good king. He was a gracious king. He was a very giving, loving king. Willing to go the extra mile so that everyone in the kingdom would have a good time and celebrate with his son. But they killed his servants. They disrespected him. And he's not too happy about it. In fact, he's ticked off. He is angered greatly. He's fed up and he's fully ticked off. And his anger burned at this evil mistreatment of his servants and the disrespect that was shown him. And he's about to stamp it out in the story. He's about to like stamp this out right now. This is going to end right here, right now. He's about to like lower the boom. And so what he does is he sends his army, he sends his army, his troops, and what do they do? They destroy those murderers, and they burn their city. Notice, it's their city. It's not his. It's in his kingdom, but he's disowned them. They have crossed the line. They've gone too far, and now their end has come. He's cut them off, and now they will be destroyed. And that's what the king does. And that, too, is pretty drastic, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about a wedding party. Servants went out to invite some guests, and they killed the servants. Now the king's going to kill all the people for, doing the, for, for, for that. I mean, some drastic stuff going on right here, right? A little overkill, Pun intended. It sounds like a kingdom that is kind of like lost view of the king, doesn't it? Like lost sheep that have kind of lost their way. Like no one pays attention to the king and they have their own agenda to live by. That's what it sounds like is happening. And it appears that there's war in the kingdom. It seems like the enemy has worked its way in and has been planting seed weeds, or weeds of seed, seed of weeds among the good seed. And now it's growing. The evil seed is growing. And it appears that fire is going to be the purging element as the king burns their city. Wow, some, some, some deep stuff. 
here going on. The king is basically saying, you, you mess with my son, you mess with my servant, and you're messing with me. Like, I have got their back. I have got my children's back. And if you mess with them, you're going to pay the price for messing with them, right? It's a drastic move on the part of the king in the story. As you think about the story, it just seems very shocking, very brutal, very eye-opening. Like almost extreme, like totally extreme, right? But it's an eternal truth that Jesus is trying to get across to them. It's a parable. This is not about weeds and seeds and figs and parties. It's about the eternal soul of people. Like this is Jesus... This is Jesus trying to like resuscitate mankind with those shock paddles, you know, like clear and thump and trying to wake them up and get them to realize that what they think is, is the way it is, isn't. They're misled, they're misguided, and they're, they're headed in the wrong directions. And Jesus is trying to like shock them back into truth. This is like a spiritual revelation of the future of what's going to happen, the second death in an eternal lake of fire. And it's no joke at that point. It's no joke. It's, it's a drastic reality, a parabolic story thrown alongside our certain future. That's what this is. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, trying to tell these people what is coming one day in the future in a story that they can kind of grab onto. And whether they make the connection or not is yet to be seen. Some will, some won't. Verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. See that verse 8? The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited, they did not deserve to come. The party's ready, the meat is cooked, everything's ready for a celebration, but those that I invited, the family, the descendants of Abraham, they did not deserve to come. That's kind of a slap in the face, isn't it? I mean, it's another one of those sad phrases that we talked about. Like, they didn't deserve it. Like when your kids do something and you say you don't deserve ice cream after your behavior, right? We, we know what that's like to say you don't deserve something. But, but this is even greater. This is intense. This is you did not deserve it. You are not worthy to enter in. That's what he's getting at. You're not worthy to enter. You're unfit for the kingdom of God. You are unsuitable for the kingdom of God. You know, we, we, we know that we're not worthy either. right? We all know that we're not worthy of his grace. We're not worthy of Christ. We're not worthy of the salvation that he has for us. We're not worthy of his promises or his gifts. We're not worthy of his presence. We're not worthy of any of it. We are not worthy. We are sinners cut off from God. Saved only by his grace. But in this walk with Jesus, <clears throat> he calls us to live a life worthy of what he's done for us. Like if we are going to follow Jesus, he calls us to live a life that is striving to match him. He said, be holy because I'm holy. He wasn't joking. He was saying, this is the bar. It's high. Now you aim for it. 
Live a life that's worthy. In Luke 21, verse 36, Jesus is talking about the end times, and he says, always be on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of God. That that phrase, you may be able to stand, means counted worthy to stand. That you may be counted worthy to stand before the Son of God. See, Jesus allows us to be brought into this and have a part in it. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 and he says, remember this, don't get any silver or gold or copper. Don't take with you uh, your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. And so we see this idea of worthy, being worthy and deserving of. Being found worthy. It's, 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 an, it's, it's not just an important aspect to following Jesus. It's biblical truth that we live lives that are worthy. And not to earn your salvation. We, we know we're not earning anything by living a life that's worthy. We're simply demonstrating the faith that we claim to have by living a life that is aiming at Christ-likeness. Living a life that's worthy. Paul said in Philippians 1, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner, what? Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right? So we're challenged to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Live like as citizens of the kingdom, right? Worthy and honorable, like representing the king. That's how Jesus wants us to live. And so those first invited to the banquet, they don't care. They don't care. They make excuses. They, they, they just don't care. They're careless with the information. And so fine. Not going to beg you to come. The king's not going to beg you to come. And, and note this. Note this. It's their choice, right? It's their free will if they want to come or not. But the party, here's the, here's the thing to note. The party and the celebration and the plans of God never change. Think about that in the kingdom, in the story, in the parable. Those things never change. What does change is the guests. The guests change. But the plans of God, the party of God, the celebration of God, the son of the king does not change at all. Only the guest list changes. Verse 8 is a turning point in the parable, right? Verse 8, God bless you. It's like two halves to the story, right? The first half is the story of verses 1 to 7 that paints this picture of this king and his kingdom and his invites and all this stuff going on. And then the second half of the story is the reality of the severity of the kingdom, verses 8 to 14. Okay, it's like the first is a past earthly story of a generous king and a disrespectful kingdom. The second is this eternal spiritual warfare that's going on spiritually as Jesus is sharing this parable. He's trying to help them understand what spiritually is happening by using a physical story, right? We get that. One may not or may have happened. The other certainly will. And Jesus is trying to help them understand what reality really is. Reality isn't the king and the kingdom and the people who are are disrespectful. The reality is... Christ is going to return, and some are going to enter into the kingdom and some are not. And Jesus is trying to help them understand 
that truth. It, this is like a, verse 8 is like, this is like a what now moment. Like what, what now? What, what do we do now? Like the banquet celebration is ready to kick off. Those that were invited have rejected the king's invite. They are no longer even around in the story. They have been wiped off the face of the earth. They've been destroyed and burned. And so what now? What are we going to do now? Well, how, how are we going to fill the, king, the, the king's palace now? Those, the family has been, is gone. What now? And you know, parables sometimes leave us in that way, right? They create that moment of like, what now? Like when Jesus told the parable of the ten virgins, remember that story? Five, good, five were wise and five were not wise. You know, five brought extra oil, five did not. And the bridegroom comes at midnight, remember? And uh, so the foolish ones have to go get more oil, right? The wise ones, they go with the bridegroom into the chamber and the door is shut, Key thought, the door is shut. Write that down. The door is shut. Remember in the parable of the visitor and the bread and the guy inside said the door is shut? Well, one day the door will be shut and time will be no more. There will be no more getting in. There will be no more opportunities to come in. The door will be shut. Key thought. The foolish ones, the, these uh, virgins, they, they arrive late, right? And they knock on the door and they ask to come in. And what happens? Because, because this is that what now moment. In verse 12 of Matthew 25, the scripture says, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. The end. The end of the story right there. I don't know you. That's what, that's what the parable ends with. I don't know you. They're left outside the door. The others are inside the door. The parable comes to an end. And so, uh-oh, what now? What do we do? Right, what do we do? In the parable, we're just left hanging. But here's the good news of the gospel. Okay, this is the good news of the gospel. When the people said, what do we do now? The story didn't just end. Right? Acts 2.38, Right? When they said, what must we do? How, you know, they realized that they had crucified the Son of God. They had nailed Jesus to the cross. And they are guilty of, of killing the Messiah. They say, what do we do? The door is not shut. The story does not end. The good news of the gospel is Jesus says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, right? The hope was given out. A second chance was laid out for them. And that second chance still is for us. Like, we still have the opportunity to accept Christ and come into the banquet hall. But one day, the door will be shut, and time will be no more, and that opportunity will be gone. Okay? For you, for me, for our friends, for our neighbors, for people. See, parables also take a, like a drastic they take a drastic like, turn. They, they get drastic fast as well. Like to emphasize a point, like in this parable that we've been studying through, the severity of the people on the servants, like that's drastic. Like, you, you know, they came to tell you the, the party's, you know, ready to happen and they kill them. Like that's pretty drastic, don't you think? And, and the, uh, the, the king's response, the judgment, the extreme judgment that the king has on the people, that is just drastic. It's drastic. It's, a, it's an attention getter. It's to wake somebody up. It's to kind of show us that, that, that it's intense when we're talking about the end of time. 
in the story. It's just a story, but it's to get their attention. And it's really important here to realize that his drastic, he's drastic in the story. The king is drastic in the parable, not to show some mean characteristic of God's, but to show his loving kindness, his patience in warning us of the severity that is to come. It's his grace that he tells this story to wake us up so that we will respond to the king who is gracious. See, the takeaway of the story should not be what a tough king. It should be, wow, thank you for warning us, and then we get our life in line with the king before the end comes. That's the point of the parable. In verse 9, the king says, go if you're still there in the scripture there with me, uh, King says, go to the street corners, right? There's the go, right? That's the go into all the world, go. Make disciples, go. Travel, journey, go. Go out and, and reach them. Go to the street corners, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the king now is just going to throw open the doors to anyone and everyone. Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, all are invited. And First John is complete. The scripture is complete. He came, remember it, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. And that, that very statement in John 1, 1 is fulfilled in, in this parable and in the truth of what happens to Jesus. And there's a couple, two small words that we should think about that relate to this, the word do and the word done. The word do and the word done. What you have done in the past, is covered, can be covered in God's grace. It doesn't matter what you've done. What you do matters greatly. What you do going forward matters. What you've done doesn't. Grace will cover that. What you do, that's important to God, what you do. Verse 10, so the servants, the servants, they went out. Okay, the king told them, go to the corners, invite to the banquet, anyone you find. So the servants... They went out. This is a great example of the do. Okay, because the Jews, to the Jews, their do was to reject Jesus and crucify him. To the servants, their do is they went out into the streets and they gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. All right, so finally, we got to this point, right? The party has kicked off. The place is full with people. What a happy day for the sun, right? Pretty rough start, but a pretty good point in the story right up to this point, right? And wouldn't it be neat if it just, we all just ended happily ever after and went our way, but that's not how it ends. There's more, another twist to the story. Here it is, ready? Verse 11, the king came in to see his guests, and he noticed a man there was not wearing wedding clothes. This seems like a weird point. But there's, there's a lot here. Verse 12, he asked him, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? In the book of Matthew, when the word friend is used, it's usually not a good thing. Like I would say, Adam, you're my friend. But in Matthew, friend usually means mistrust. Like Judas. When Judas came to Jesus in the garden and kissed him on the cheek, and Jesus said, Friend, do what you must do. Friend is not a good word in Matthew. So, you know, just side note, extra. 
point there. He says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friends? So notice a couple things. The king, first of all, is aware of who's in here. <laughs> He's like very aware. And, and, the, and it's, it makes it sound very nonchalant, like nobody is going to sneak into the kingdom. It makes it sound very nonchalant that the king just casually looks, but this is not casual look at his guests. This is an intent look at his guests to know who they are, right, to know about them. And the second thing is this, the man, the man, one, is not wearing wedding clothes, and two, he, he somehow got in without them. So this is, first of all, this is not about like wearing our Sunday best. Okay, that's not what this is about. Don't, don't make that assumption or leap. This is about filthy rags. Right? Isaiah said that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Okay, Because there's nothing really all that good about us without God, without Christ. In verse 11, he says, he says, he says the king spotted or he noticed the man right? And the man was not wearing wedding clothes. So back then, in the custom of the day of a royal wedding, the, the palace, or the king, provided clothes, wedding clothes, like festive clothes for every guest that would come in. And if they came through the main gate, they would be given a robe or some clothes, a celebratory garb, that they would put on, it kind of leveled the playing field. Everyone was equal there. The only one who stood out was the bride and the bridegroom, right? That's it. And all were equal. No one else stood out. Caftan, the word caftan means that kind of thing. It's a festive attire, a robe or a garment that was provided at the feast for the feast for this wedding. So side note, to come in in rags showed great disrespect to come into the wedding hall in your rags without the wedding clothes just showed great disrespect and no one was getting in to see uh to see the king in these rags of flesh like nobody can do that you can't get into the kingdom of god or into the wedding banquet in these rags of flesh something has to be done the garments were freely offered at the main gate at the palace so if you don't have them it's your fault it's like your fault it's your own fault if you don't have them. because they they're provided freely freely you can have them if you want them I can have them if I want them. In verse 12, he asks, how did you get in here? So one, he doesn't have the clothes on. Two, how did you get in here? Like, how did you get into this celebration hall? How did you even get in here? Because if you came through the main gate, you would have been given festive attire. So did you climb in over the wall? Did you climb in through a window? Isn't that interesting? John 10, 1, the scripture says, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. That's interesting. The man is speechless and his guilt silenced him because this is the king questioning him about what he's wearing and how he got in here. Verse 13 then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
In other words, sin is not tolerated in the kingdom. Right? It's not tolerated. For, for, for a typical wedding banquet, this would have kind of been extreme, but the parable has shifted from like a physical king with his wedding party to very spiritual matters that Jesus is trying to instill in their hearts. This is end times he's talking about. This is how it will be in the future, the future reality of weeping and gnashing of teeth, that extreme regret that people will have if they don't get come into Christ now, if they put it off or they waste time or they, they, they ignore the information. And into darkness, where he says, throw them outside into the darkness, is a reference to hell. Verse 14. And this is not part of the parable. This is Jesus' like Jesus is, uh, his, his, his comment about the parable that he just told. He says, in conclusion, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Right? And chosen meaning like by their choice, by your choice. The invitation went to everyone, and some will choose to come in and accept it, and some will not. So what an intense parable, right? I mean, it starts like so every day. It's a wedding feast. It's about a king and a son and a, and a party and a celebration. And it ends, it ends in this warning of a coming tragedy like real eternal hell tragedy that is coming, still coming for us even. It's out there in front of us. It hasn't happened yet. So what's the application? How does this apply to us? We're going to go through this real quick. Number one, here's the application. First, number one, the king is preparing a great banquet. We should know that, right? Our king, King Jesus, he is preparing this great banquet. This is not just a parable. This is a truth about a great future party that's, that's coming in front of us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Revelation 19.9 says, Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So make no mistake about it. The king's house will be full. The king says, the king will say, let the party begin. And that's why, that's why when we come to worship together, when we come to sing these songs to God, this is a celebration. The, the party has already begun. We are in Christ. We are safe in his presence. And so we have nothing to do but say, thank you, God. Like, praise you, Lord. Thank you for forgiving us, Jesus. We look forward to that wedding banquet that is out there in the future. Do you have your place at the table? That's really what this parable brings up. Do you have your place at the table? There's only one way to RSVP, and that is to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life and confess Him as Lord and be immersed into Jesus. That's it. That's the only way to accept the invitation and to be safe in the, the kingdom, to be brought in. The day of the Lord is coming sooner than we think. We eagerly, we eagerly wait for His return. Amen? Let's tell as many people as we can before that day comes and the door is shut. Number two, don't blow it. Don't blow it. In all of our fancy religious awareness, you know, we could miss it. We could miss it, just like the Jews did. Like they thought they had it all down to a fine science, and they totally missed Jesus. They totally missed Jesus because they were too wrapped up in stuff and things and religion. It's a warning. 
Like we have all the garb, we got the building, we got the programs, but could it be that in our estimation of what we have arrived to, only to discover that what we think it is, is not it? That what we think we are doing here is not at all what God would want us to be doing? Could it be that? Could it be that we have like totally done our own thing? Something to think about, something to, to evaluate ourselves with, because that's what Jesus is challenging those religious leaders in, in this parable. All right? if, if our idea of church is something that we go to, you should stop going. You should stop going and start being. Because what he calls us to is to be the church. He never calls us to go to church, ever, in the scriptures. See, the Jews were very religious, but they rejected Jesus. They had replaced a relationship with Jesus with religious busyness. Let's not be guilty of doing the same thing. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, right? That's what he came to call. No one is righteous. We've all sinned. We're all guilty. But these people, some of these people, and some people today are, who think they are righteous, think that they have somehow arrived at a place in God's presence that they don't even need him anymore. And then there are those who understand that we're sinners and we're lost and we need a savior. We need, we need salvation. And every day we realize when we wake up that, that we, we don't deserve his grace, but he willingly and lavishes it onto us, right? Blowing it, I think blowing it would be thinking that you're something when you're not. Right? Thinking that we deserve something when we don't. The word says, humble yourself under the Lord and he will lift you up. Right? So don't blow it. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, if you think you are standing strong or firm, be careful that you do not fall. The reason that sinners don't come to Christ is not because they can't, it's because they refuse. Number three, the ball is in your court, right? The ball is in our court, right? The invite went out. The, the Jews had the initial access, right? The children and descendants of Abraham had initial accidents or, uh, access into the kingdom, into the party, but they did not accept the Messiah. Instead, they beat God's servant and they killed him. That's what they did to Jesus. We are among, we are among the street people. We are the Gentiles, the needy, the poor, the crippled, and the lame. Once we were outside, now we've been invited in to the banquet. Right? Once we were in darkness, now we've been brought into the light. We were once foreigners and strangers, now we are children of God. And God has sent out the invite, and you are invited to the greatest feast in all of eternity. How we respond to the invite makes all the difference. It's not what you've done, it's what will you do. What will you do? The ball is in your court. And finally, number four, we have a glorious king. We have a glorious, patient king. He has cut no corners. He has the very best in store for you and for me. And we are invited to this great feast because we have a gracious creator. We are offered salvation. We are offered salvation by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And our response to that grace is most critical, right? It's most critical. Only those dressed in Christ will be allowed in. 
We must be dressed in Christ. You must have the robes of royalty provided only by the king. No other way to get them. It's the grace of God that extends a robe of, of, of healing and a robe of forgiveness and a robe of grace that you can accept and put on. And only those dressed will enter in. You can't do it on your own. You can't earn it by good works. You can't sneak in through some other form of religion. Christ alone, Christ alone, the Son of the King, the one who the banquet is for, is the only one who can let you in. And only in a relationship with Him can we enter in and be dressed in Him. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are in awe of your, your greatness. We're in awe of, of the life of Jesus and the things that he said and the way that he taught and the truths that he brought from heaven and put them in, in ways that we can grab onto. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to grab onto the truth of this parable and, and the banquet that is to come, the, the celebration that is out in front of us, that only those that are dressed in Christ will be able to enter in. God, we want to enter. We want to be like Christ. We want to live in the truth, God, of your word. We want to be a church that lives in the truth of who you are. And Father, we want other people to know this great grace that we have in you. Help us, Father, to walk each day in, in your presence knowing that you love us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.